PeaceHealth Peace Harbor Medical Center presents Doc Talk, an informative health series educating our community on the services provided at PeaceHealth. We will begin with our host, George Henry, after these messages. You're not feeling well? You twist your ankle? Or you have that pain in your shoulder that just doesn't go away? There is an alternative to the emergency room. It's the PeaceHealth Walk-In Clinic. There's no appointment necessary, and you may have to wait, but you could see someone today. It's open six days a week in the 380 building, just across from Peace Health Peace Harbor Medical Center. The Peace Health Walk-In Clinic, your local health partners. At some point in her life, one out of every eight women will get breast cancer. One out of eight. Most women can beat it, but only with early detection. Don't let breast cancer stop you. Manograms save lives. Better total care. Peace Harbor Imaging now has digital mammograms. Get one. Joining me on this edition of Doc Talk, I have three guests with me today. First, Dr. Andrea Halliday. She is the Chief Clinical Officer at Peace Health, Peace Harbor. And then Diana Pimlot, who is the pharmacist with Peace Harbor. And Bill Prosser, who is a doctor of nurse anesthesia. Help me out, Bill. Nurse anesthesia practice. Practice. There you go. DNAP. Get me through this. We are here today. We're going to discuss a couple of things that are happening at the hospital. And those of you who that have known we've talked with Bill Proster before knows that his work with uh, opioid um, reduction in the hospital, we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. But Dr. Halliday, let's talk first about some of the things that are going on at Peace Health that you're involved in, um, that you're working on right now, including um, the safety stop and, of course, the clinical excellence. So let's go over the safety stop. Tell me a little bit about what that is. Okay. Well, what it is is it's an immediate response to a, a safety event. So we actually started about a year and a half ago. We mapped out our process and saw that our response to an, a safety event didn't really support the caregiver, caregivers and have the sense of urgency that those events require. So we developed a program. We actually did this through the whole Peace Health system and have implemented in all of our hospitals and all of our clinics. And uh, it, what happens is if there's uh, a caregiver, any caregiver can call it. It's a stop the line if they see there's an immediate threat to patient safety. And uh, then there's a, a response where you have an administrator, and then also we have trained safety stop responders that come in. And you, and you treat, treat it almost like a crime scene where if you have, you know, if there was a medication error, say, that you sequestered the medication, you start an investigation right away, you interview people right away, because that's when the information's fresh. And then the other thing you can do is you can say, okay, if we had an error that occurred where we had two medications next to each other that looks like and that caused an error, where else in the hospital could that be occurring or where else in the clinic could that be occurring? Then you go to all those spots and make sure you don't have the same uh, error uh, present and or if you do, you, you fix it right in the moment. And then we do uh, a handoff huddle where we decide the next day, you know, what we need to do to, to further our investigation, and sometimes that leads to a, a root cause analysis or some other kind of performance improvement. We circle back with the caregivers that were involved and let them know what we're doing and have them be involved in, in the performance improvement. And the goal here is to have no repeat events so that we're getting safer and safer and safer. And we have achieved about a 40% reduction in our safety events as a result of this program. Now, you mentioned one of the issues, like maybe there were two medicines side by side. Could this also be an event where you have a patient chart and the patient has an allergy or, or reaction to a certain medication 
and they may be about to be given the wrong medication. Is that something? That's exactly, and that's actually where we really like to have it called is is before it's even reached the patient. So we are encouraging and trying to empower our caregivers to speak up and even self-report so that if I was about to give this patient a medication they were allergic to, um, and I'm a good caregiver, what is wrong with our process that made it easy for me to make that kind of mistake? So it's not about at that point, it's not about laying blame as to what's happening. It's about finding out how not to, to make that recur. Exactly. It's not about blame at all. It's about the process, not the person. Now, do you do you guys train for incidents like this, or is it just something as you go along, you implement procedure, and then you just follow the procedure, or is there actual training? There's you? actual training that's going on. So there's been extensive training system-wide. We trained all of the immediate responders, and we've uh, in the safety stop process, all of our managers in the hospitals and the clinics have been trained, and all of our executives. And so and now we're setting up, now that we have it implemented everywhere, we're setting up ongoing training. We've also created something called standard work, which, which really what it is is you should be able to take somebody else's work. It's a step-by-step process and follow it and be able to do the same job. So we really try to emphasize something called training within industry, So, which is really what we did during World War II when the women were coming into the factories is they, they we created at that time there was standard work created for how do you put in a rivet or how do you run a drill and that you could teach, watch somebody else do it. You could then watch them do it, and then they would teach other people to do it. So we do a lot of that, that kind of training. But make sure we have a very well-defined for all of the roles, step-by-step process. Can you, with this process, can you affect things that happen prior to them coming into the hospital, like, for example, ambulance transfer? Are you working with Western Lane to give some of the same training, or is that something maybe down the road? Um, well, if they were involved in an event, and, and we would certainly involve them in, in the training, have we trained them in the safety stop process? No, but um, you know that's a, that's a really good thought. That I think our next step now that we've, we only have one more place to roll it out, and that's home health care here in Florence, um, would be to roll it out to allow families to participate so that if they're there and they see that the wrong medication is about to be given, or wait a minute, she's allergic to that or something like that, that they too can call a safety stop. So that might be our, our next iteration of, of uh, safety stop. Well, then again, also it, it educates the family to start noticing maybe some of these things at home prior to an event as well. So it's a, like full circle. It's full circle. So we do have it in the clinics. So we're trying to get that continuum, uh, you know, cross the continuum of care, as you point out, not be siloed in the hospitals. We also have our in our home health cares. So we're trying, you know, as you say, to, to have it really cross the whole continuum of care for a patient. All right. Sounds like a, a pretty extensive program there. Uh, I'll tell you, what, we'll take a quick break right now. I'm talking with Dr. Andrea Halliday. She's the chief clinical officer at Peace Harbor. And we'll be back with Diana Pimlot and Bill Prosser as well. You're not feeling well. You twist your ankle. Or you have that pain in your shoulder that just doesn't go away. There is an alternative to the emergency room. It's a Peace Health walk-in clinic. There's no appointment necessary, and you may have to wait, but you could see someone today. It's open six days a week in the 380 building, just across from Peace Health Peace Harbor Medical Center. The Peace Health Walk-In Clinic, your local health partners. At some point in her life, one out of every eight women will get breast cancer. One out of eight. Most women can beat it, but only with early detection. Don't let breast cancer stop you. Mammogram save lives. 
better total care. Peace Harbor Imaging now has digital mammograms. Get one. On this edition of Doc Talk, I'm back with Dr. Andrea Holliday, and she is the Chief Clinical Officer for the Peace Health Medical System, which includes Peace Harbor Hospital here and many other clinics around the state and Alaska and Washington as well. And we were talking about uh, Safety Stop, and now also today I'd like you to introduce Diana Pimlot, and we'll talk about what her experience is with this program. Well, Diana is a pharmacist at Peace Harbor Hospital and always have been very interested in patient safety, fortunately. So she's the patient safety officer for Peace Harbor Hospital. So uh, she has worked as a responder to um, the safety stops uh, in an administrative role. And so I wanted her to share how this is working actually in Peace Harbor itself and, and what how it's you know, how meaningful it's been for the caregivers and any stories she'd like to share about how it's working on the ground here. All right. And welcome back. We've, Thank you. We've had you in before and uh, it's been a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the safe, Safety Stop program at Peace Health, uh, Peace Harbor, at Peace Harbor. specifically. Yes. yes. Well, um, I'll just say, you know, initially bringing the Safety Stop program from much larger facilities to a smaller critical access hospital like we have felt pretty pretty daunting, uh, you know, initially. it We have a limited number of resources here. So um, I was very proud of the team that met um, up at, at, a, at their system offices to perform what we call a Kaizen, really a, just a, a generalized work group sitting down with the executives at Peace Health, with our peers, all at the same table to say, how can we make this safety stop program work at our smaller facilities? Um, it's been successful at the larger ones. How can we make it successful at our smaller facilities, allowing that we do have such limited resources? We spent two or three days, I'm not sure, but um, we put our heads together and came out with a process that we thought that we could we could implement and um, without adding resources on the ground. So brought it back home to Florence, um, worked together with our small group of leaders to introduce it to our teams here and build some excitement around the program, uh, assign some um the safety stop responders, the um, AOCs, ensuring that everyone knows what they needed to do. And we got to work. So we saw immediately a tremendous success. Um, we have in Florence, our caregivers are very eager to participate. They, um, they're comfortable bringing issues to our executive team here on the ground. And so it, it felt good to them to begin to say, you know what, I have a concern and I can present it. I, I, they've given me a tool. And look, I'm just I'm calling a safety stop because I have a concern about a patient need and I'm getting immediate response. And top that off, I'm actually getting to participate in making the decisions that will help um, prevent this type of situation from occurring again. So um, the number of safety stops that we've had here at Peace Harbor are indicative of that excitement. Most in, most of the safety stops that we see called are not are not due to imminent um, patient harm. Um, it's not typically a stop the line type of event. What they're calling for is, I see that a potential for error which could which could harm a patient in the future, and I'd like to stop it now. And I have an idea, suggestion for improvement. So that's really what we're seeing, and that's exciting, um, because there's nothing better than tackling those problems up front and preventing a, an error from occurring to a, one of our patients. What sort of challenges make or would make it difficult to do this in a smaller setting than a larger setting? You mentioned resources available. Yes. What sort of resources 
did you feel were lacking in the smaller hospitals that made it more difficult to implement? Really, it, it's the resources are um, staff, the number of, of individuals that can respond to an event. Um, in our smaller facilities, we have a very a, a small number of, of leaders. We ha- may have one manager who has um, several disciplines that they're they're responsible for. We have one nurse manager who is responsible for the ICU, the emergency um, department, as well as the discharge uh, planners, care planners. So there's a there's a large, um, you know, they just have a lot more. Um, to do, I, I would say, not, not really in terms of um, time-wise, but just a broader res- area of responsibility. And, and a broader area of the hospital that they are going to be in That's, that's exactly right. So when a safety stop occurs, everything else is dropped. Patient safety takes precedent over anything else that we as leaders are doing. So we stop and we go. And depending upon the event, it, the event could take us from our, our regular tasks anywhere from 30 minutes to three hours, depending on, on the actual event itself. And you have to be willing to, to make that sacrifice in time. That's to absolutely get it right. Up. That's absolutely right. And the work doesn't stop there. You know, once the event is, we have um, the situation under control, then we, as um, the administrators on call, those safety stop resi- responders, gather all the information by interviewing um, everyone involved. Then we take that inter- in, um, information to a leadership huddle the following day, typically, and we discuss the event. And, and we try to identify um, any additional countermeasures that we need to put in place to prevent the event from happening again. We will evaluate the immediate countermeasure, so something that we did in the moment to ensure that, that the patient is cared for and, the, and it will not happen to the next patient before we can do some additional work in, in evaluating the overall processes. Um, so within, the, the, within that safety stop huddle, with the leadership team, we're determining what additional um, task we need to perform. So do we need to do a process improvement uh, work? Do we need, do we have all the um, information that we need to make a decision in improving the situation? Um, do we need to do a root cause analysis, et cetera? So the action and, and work around a safety stop then continues to ensure that we've really addressed the problem. So on average, from the from the moment a safety stop is called to where a new policy or procedure might be in place, I imagine it depends on the event, what it yes. was. But on average, what's the time frame? You could see that occurring anywhere between 14 days to 30 days. Now, if it's a severe safety event, then we need to wrap that up in a much shorter period of time. We aim for 72 hours um, to get really a root cause analysis completed, to really know what action is needed, and then to drive that action to completion within that that period of uh, 20 to 30 days. I would imagine if it's something that's merely procedural, that just the awareness for the time period while you're dealing with the issue brings people's focus into play, and then then it's it's not as critical to get that procedure in place immediately because everyone's focused on it already. Yeah, well, we focused on an immediate countermeasure. So, you know, it's sort of, if you think about the Swiss cheese, there are several, you know, if you were to line up, if you were to make several slices in the cheese, and, and would you ever be able to line up the holes so an air could just kind of s- slip through? Well, there is that one time, that one event, when, yes, those holes line up. But if you were to... Um, correct a single step within a process that would eliminate one hole out of the Swiss cheese model, then you would prevent an error from occurring. So when we're looking for an immediate countermeasure, we're looking for that one process step, that one key piece that will prevent the error from occurring in, in this window of time 
also recognizing that we're going to go back and we're going to look at we're going to look at the overall process and see what else needs to be improved so we can really solidify and ensure that this type of event doesn't occur again. And so at, at times it may just be that one thing that needs to change. That's right. But then when you look at the whole thing, there may be the whole system yes. of things needs to when change. When you think about, um, you know, healthcare is multidisciplinary. It involves the patient, the family. We have providers and nurses and pharmacists, and we have um, technology. And, uh, you know, there's, it's just multifactorial. And you often... You have the people that clean the hospital, That's too. exactly so, I mean, right. Everybody, yes. everybody plays in that. Yep, okay. Absolutely. Wow, that's that's pretty cool, and that's a good thing that I'm. That I see that we do that here at Peace, yeah. Arm, Peace Arm. And so it's you know I think what's really rewarding about all of this is yes, it is it is some work. It's it's plenty of work. Um, however, our caregivers are so excited about it, and and one of the reasons for that is they're involved in the decisions that are being made um, that really directly impact them and the patients that they're caring for. So they're in there working on, on those processes right along with us and ensuring that the work is done. Well, there's something about knowing your voice gets heard no matter where you are on the ladder to success. That's that, right. That, is, that empowers people. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yes. So is that basically cover the safety stop um, portion of what we were going to talk about? Or did you have anything to add to that that you wanted to add? Well, I would just say that I'm, you know, really proud of the work they're doing here at Peace Harbor. I've spent the day here and have looked at a lot of their processes, and I can see the, the maturation since we first rolled it out here and the engagement and and the keeping track of the performance improvement. So one of the things we've also really worked on that they're doing very well here is a sense of rigor so that if you need to you know, someone didn't know how to use a piece of equipment that they really in their role needed, we need to make sure they know to do that, then we really need the rigor of listing all the people who need to know that and checking them off and then watching them use that equipment and then having a sustainment plan to make sure that people don't drift from the standard work or that we don't miss as new people come on or we have um, people who are just uh, temporary to make sure that we're training them to our standard processes. So I think we're reaching a level of rigor that's really, it's it's high reliability. So it's getting to like what, where the airlines are, where they have re- dramatically reduced their defects. In other words, accidents. We want to get to the same place and have the same rigor where we really reduce our preventable events that um, can could negatively impact a patient to zero. And I can really see that kind of rigor occurring here at Peace Harbor. I'm very proud of them. So when it comes to the staffing and that you take you take the, the assumption out of everything and and just and retrain where so there is no assumption that someone knows what they're supposed to be doing with a certain piece of equipment or right, right because assumptions is I'm sure everybody realizes yeah. get us into trouble. Right. And so we, you know, again, you someone might know it, but then you need to test their competency to to really make sure that they do know it. And this is this is a chronic problem when you when you have uh, people that are in and out and in different shifts, and sometimes people miss training. You just you really have to be very rigorous about writing. You can't just say, oh, I've talked to my nurses and I've trained them. You have to really, have you written down all the names of every nurse that could possibly come into the hospital and make sure they have they understand that this is this is their job and this is how they do it. All right. We, on this edition of Donk Talk, we are talking safety stop. And uh, we are talking with the folks from Peace Health, which is Dr. Andrea Halliday, and then Peace Harbor. We have Diana Pimlot, and we'll be talking with Bill Prosser next about clinical excellence and uh, the reduction of opioid use uh, during the hospital stay. You're not feeling well, you twist your ankle, or you have that pain in your shoulder that just doesn't go away? There is an alternative to the emergency room, 
It's the Peace Health Walk-In Clinic. There's no appointment necessary, and you may have to wait, but you could see someone today. It's open six days a week in the 380 building just across from Peace Health Peace Harbor Medical Center. The Peace Health Walk-In Clinic, your local health partners. At some point in her life, one out of every eight women will get breast cancer. One out of eight. Most women can beat it, but only with early detection. Don't let breast cancer stop you. Manogram save lives. Better total care. Peace Harbor Imaging now has digital mammograms. Get one. On this edition of Doc Talk, we are talking with the folks from Peace Health and from Peace Harbor. Dr. Andrea Halliday is here. She's the Chief Clinical Officer for Peace Health Medical. And then we're going to get into something called clinical excellence. Tell me what clinical excellence is. Well, about a year and a half ago, we said, you know, we want to be in a journey. We want to be the best. And uh, wherever we are, you know, throughout our whole three-state hospital system, there are four things patients want when they come into a hospital. They want to get better. They don't want to get harmed. They want to be treated with respect, and they don't want to be bankrupted. Hmm. So we have an obligation to meet those four things. And what I'm in charge of is helping them get better by making sure we have really good processes and that we are we're doing evidence-based medicine and also reducing any patient harm. So reducing infections from indwelling catheters, for example, to zero. So that those are our clinical excellence initiatives, and we have a number of them ongoing that we've rolled out here at uh, Peace Harbor and throughout our system, reducing pressure injuries from patients lying in bed, reducing catheter-associated urinary tract infections. I just saw a wonderful chart on one of the boards where our utilization has dropped way down of putting catheters in our patients. So we're putting them in only when they really need it because you can't get an infection if you don't have a catheter. And we now have an initiative for falls with harm because we do have patients that get up and so and sometimes fall, and uh, if they're older and you know with uh, brittle bones, they can have fractures. So that's the latest initiative been rolling out. It looks like it's it's really done very well here, and as it has throughout our system. So another initiative that. I've been working with Bill and others on is our opiate initiative. So, and that's when we started off the conversation talking about the continuum of care. So we want to work through the continuum of care to reduce the need for any patient to take opioids. So we have a number of ways that we're doing that. We're really working with physicians and prescribing them, make sure they have the data to see how many op- opioids their patients are taking, what other medications they might, might be taking that that interact with the opioids to make them even more potent. But we also want to work on alternatives to opiates. So I know there's work in Florence working with yoga instructors so that as, a, as an alternative to taking pain medicine, Tai Chi, other things that can be done. And then Bill is one of my heroes because he's really working on, on surgery that uh, doesn't require the use of opioids at all. So I'll turn it over to Bill. Now, but we've talked about this before when when we first met and Mm -hmm. we discussed this. Now, this is, in some circles, it's very controversial because there's some doctors that are still educated in the idea that, okay, we have to give them this kind of pain medication. And and you have been working to to re-educate the idea that opioids are not necessarily necessary when it comes to surgeries and things like that. Tell me a little bit about where we are today with that. Well... You know, one one of the things that we've all come together with on this, that all three of us have a background in patient safety. Um, the way that I've tried to pursue this is through opioid reduction. And we found with, with the proliferation of, of powerful opioids in the country, it, it's 
generally not been a good thing for our patients, but it helped, it helped us uncover the need for finding other ways around this. Um, I kind of have been lucky to be in a, a supportive group like this where we can really start to explore some of the best practice national and international opioid reduction strategies. Um, it's, it's a slow go, but, you know, for example, the last time we talked, we're, we're using some long-lasting local anesthetics and non-narcotic drugs in conjunction to reduce the chance of exposure during anesthesia, which is where most people get their first taste of opioids. And if they're predisposed towards becoming addicted to them or really having downstream problems from it, it starts right then. So one of the things that we've really been exploring and, and really moving forward with at Peace Harbor is the concept of opioid-free anesthesia, which means that using a different different combination of nerve blocks or you know, um, local anesthetics that are applied by the surgeon in conjunction with really what is gelling as a national best practice opioid reducing strategy, um, we're able to maybe expose one or two percent of our patients to opioids as opposed to a hundred percent five years ago. And what we find with that is that if, if we're able to eliminate their exposure to opioids intraoperatively and dramatically reduce them postoperatively, it, it has a massive downstream effect where those same patients maybe a week out, they require one-fifth the amount of opioids they would have traditionally. Then the challenge that, that you mentioned is that how do we get people to change their thinking about that? And, and really, you have to show them and you have to present the evidence and you have to be patient. And so it's generally, if it's, if it's something that's outside of a, a particular provider's wheelhouse, it takes a lot of coaching and say, look, you know, how about we try this this time and, and do it this way? And you'll see there's a difference. And so, so that's kind of the approach that we've taken at our hospital. And we've been very lucky. We have a small group. And so there aren't a whole lot of people that you need to talk to about this. Um, when I was at the university, you might have to convince 100 people. And here, there may be, you have to convince five. And, you know, it, it's worked out very well for the community. I would say that we're, we're, for some of our service lines, we're approaching zero opioid for the whole surgical course. Um, for some of the smaller general surgery things, for some of the smaller orthopedic things. Um, but our goal is to go to zero opioid. And that plays in very well with the zero harm thing because harm related to opioids is essentially a dose-dependent phenomenon. And the more that you get, the more likely you are to be harmed by them, the more likely you are to have downstream effects. Um, there was a paper that came out a year and a half or so ago from the state of Oregon showing that the, the biggest driver of postoperative delirium was opioid exposure. And that of those people who went on to get delirium, that their postoperative mortality in one year, mortality, could be as high as 40%. And so that's made us say, wait a minute, we've really got to redress the way we do this. And uh, so we're always trying to, to search the literature, talk to people in, really in a national and international cohort, find out what's working best everywhere, and then try and bring that here. So this is still pretty much a process. I mean, if you, if you take a look at the timeline of medicine as a pendulum and, you know, over on this side you have, here, bite on this while I make this incision. And over on this side of the pendulum you've got, all right, let's just give you opioids. And you're trying to find that, that center, and that's, that's probably going to take some time and study to find out exactly well, what, what will work that, to eliminate either side of the yeah, pendulum. Yeah, I would look at it more of, of the pendulum swung from, here, bite on this, 
to now the middle of the swing is we treat everything with opioids. And in the future, it'll be we have something dramatically better than opioids that will make every aspect of your surgical care or your pain management better. What kind of changes do you, do you, do you foresee in the immediate future as to what you're finding out about the changes in um, non-opioid medications and things like that? Well, we're finding that, that most patients have a clearer head when they're done. They're surprised to find out. They've been socialized to believe that because they had surgery, they're going to need opioids. And, and as we work on that end of it, which requires a little more education from their surgeons or, or their managing physicians, um, and, and we're finding out that, that people, if they're properly educated and socialized to believe that, you know, opioids aren't necessarily good for you. And, and we'll treat your pain, and, and if opioids are required as part of that strategy, we can do that, but we really need to limit it to protect you um, is, is one aspect of it. We're introducing continually new technology, and we're very close now to, to starting a trial of something here that will further reduce our opioid requirements. Um, and, and we'll see, and, and a lot of it has to do with, with patient expectation, provider education, you know, and, and once people start to believe that taking large amounts of opioids are bad for them, um, and, and sh- we should really use the smallest amount necessary and make them a partner in their pain management from the very beginning, that's where we're really going to get the traction, and that's where I see the pendulum swinging towards. Dr. Halley, as experienced as a, a neurosurgeon, and maybe this doesn't come into play, so you can just tell me if I'm way off base or not, the brain is a very powerful tool. And like Bill was saying, if people believe that they need something, it's kind of hard to talk them out of it. The brain's got this idea that I need this to be better. So does that work into it at all? I mean, as far as the, the education goes and getting people out of that mindset? It totally does. So that's part of the, the opioid initiative that we're rolling out throughout the system is developing uh, education materials that surgeons can hand out in their clinics that may help manage people's expectation. And then also working with the nursing staff. I mean, a lot of the nurses were um, trained at a time, as I was too, where you, you didn't ever let anybody be in pain. And you, you sort of pushed opioids on them. So we need... Yeah, here's a button. Press this mm-hmm. when you feel it hurts. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we're... And, and also, and then the whole thing about OxyContin not being addictive. Uh, a lot of us were trained with that too, which is not true. So it's really, it's also re-educating all of our caregivers too. To, to a lot of what Bill is talking about, that that opioids make a lot of our patients sick. I mean, a lot of patients end up with nausea or the delirium, and they would feel better if their pain was managed with other venues. And then it's setting expectations that that you that you really can't go through surgery and have zero pain, you know. Or maybe if you if until Bill's blocks wear off, you know, if you've got a block <laughs> or something, you might be able to. But but that, um, you know, pain in, in a way is part of life. And we don't want to make trade a, a temporary problem, which is pain from a surgical procedure or an accident or something, for a permanent problem of addiction. That is, as you can see, is, is that's now the most common cause of death in younger people. It's more common than, than car accidents is, is drug overdoses. I t- when, when I just wanted to throw something okay. out there. But one thing that Dr. Halliday brought up, and I'll, I'll just kind of – throw this out as the focus of what we're trying to do really. When someone has surgery, there's what's called a pro-inflammatory phase, and and that's the immediate injury for surgery, and it lasts two or three days. And most people, if you can get them through that piece without opioids, then they're very likely to succeed without opioids. And so when she spoke of some of the nerve blocks that we do and and some of the the temporary things, our focus on that is that three-day 
period. And if we can get people through there successfully, they're really likely to succeed. So another thing we've done is it used to be a standard. You send people home on 30 pills of opioids. We've changed it to 10. And so, there, so there's not – and a lot of people had opioids just sitting in their you know, medicine cabinet. So we're trying to reduce the amount of opioids that are out there mm-hmm. that can be abused in the community as well. I tell you what, I could, I could talk for another half an hour with you guys about this. Unfortunately, we are out of time right now. Thank you all for being here today and appreciate the information and what you're doing over there at Peace Harbor and Dr. Halliday with Peace Health in general. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Doc Talk, presented by Peace Health Peace Harbor Medical Center. For more information on the program and services provided, visit peacehealth.org.